kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that was purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Our last study covered a major turning point, not only in the narrative of Acts, but the history of the church and of the universe altogether. The God of heaven worked by his mighty power to bring the church on earth, especially the twelve apostles, into harmony with his own will to the increase of his kingdom throughout all nations. In this study, we're going to have to deal with some issues of chronology. While the purpose of this section is to move things forward, and it does just that, before it can move forward, of necessity it backtracks to an earlier episode. Later, when the apostle Paul re-enters the narrative— we will need to take an interlude of our own to consider what he's been doing since the last time we saw him. So there may be times when we are jumping back and forth on the timeline, but being aware of that should help us stay together and on track. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Here we have a retrospective statement that carries us back to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The death of Stephen led into the larger-scale persecution of the Hellenist believers in Judea and caused them to flee for their lives to several other places where it would be more difficult for Saul and his friends to find them. Remember that Hellenist believers were the Jews who had come to Christ from cultural backgrounds that had been more strongly influenced by Greek society. They spoke the Greek language, and they had less scruples about engaging with aspects of Greek culture that were extremely distasteful to their Hebrew or Judean brethren. In Acts 8, Luke focused his attention on the ministry of Philip. Now we understand why. Philip was, like Stephen, an exceptionally broad-minded and forward-thinking man who was able to quickly grasp an element of the gospel message that escaped the others, even the twelve apostles, for several years, namely, that the gospel was for all nations. He preached very early to the Samaritans, and then, with a little divine direction, he preached to and baptized a Gentile man from Ethiopia. However, his approach was evidently 
not the norm. His brethren, who went north to Phoenicia, Syria, and the island of Cyprus, refrained from evangelizing anyone but the Jews only. Of course, Philip's work in Samaria drew the attention of the apostles and brethren in Judea. But his baptism of the Ethiopian was likely known only to himself, the eunuch, and God, until either he felt able to report it to others, or the broader evangelistic work which God was now setting in motion, took other brethren to the south, and they began to meet people who already knew Christ because the work of the eunuch himself. If you recall, we suggested that the eunuch was left untaught in the principles of Christianity because that responsibility fell primarily to the apostles, and they were not ready to offer it to a man like him. But he went on his way rejoicing because he trusted that the Lord Jesus would bring it to him soon enough. While we do not read any more of his story in the Bible, what we see here is the realization of the eunuch's hope. While it was true that many of the Jewish Christians, even some from the Hellenist background, were slow to reach those outside of Israel with the gospel, Luke continues in verse 20, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. It will be meaningful that these believers were from Cyprus and Cyrene in just a moment, but for now, the most important matter is what they did when they came to Antioch. There were several cities called Antioch in the ancient world. The two most prominent were this one and another in Pisidia, and they were distinguished from one another by calling one Pisidian Antioch and this one Syrian Antioch, or Antioch on the Orontes, the river on the banks of which it was built. Before the conquest of the Greeks, Damascus was regarded as the chief city of Syria. But at this point in history, Antioch had essentially claimed that position for itself, not only in title, but properly by its nature. The city was an architectural wonder, laid out with a grid of streets which could maximize cool breezes blowing in from the Mediterranean Sea. The city was renowned for its comforts. It had numerous public and private baths, indoor plumbing, a sanitary sewer, and a system for lighting the city that, according to reports, made the night commonly equal the resplendence of the day. It was a major center for trade and commerce, and there was a great deal of lucrative work to be found, but it was also notorious for its idolatry, superstition, and immorality. A five-mile paved road led south of the city to the wicked suburb of Daphne, the cult of Apollo worshipped in the groves, and the temple prostitutes performed all kinds of public acts of debauchery. Here, the followers of Jesus came to spread the gospel to the citizenry. This is very interesting to me, because in the late 19th century, many conservative Christians in America formally and intentionally rejected work in the cities as a futile effort. The cities were too immoral, too ideologically and philosophically liberal, the social climate was not conducive to the spread of the Christian message, so those who wished to thrive in their faith were encouraged to resort to the country and the rural burgs. Church meeting houses were built in the middle of the woods or at country crossroads, and those who sought to establish anything in an urban setting were criticized for taking part in a fool's errand. I do not believe the differences between the first century disciples and the 19th and 20th century disciples, and shall we say the 21st century disciples, was simply a matter of historical context. 
I dare say that Antioch, Corinth, and Rome were any less immoral, ideologically and philosophically corrupt, and unconducive to the spread of the Christian message than were New York City, San Francisco, Paris, or Tokyo in 1890 or 2021. The difference between them and us is that we have been influenced by some prevailing theological theories that have a very pessimistic view of the success of the gospel and the kingdom of God. We seem to think that if the world is not tuned just right before we get to them, there's no hope for the Christian faith to take root among them. And the problem is the world is getting worse and worse all the time. The ship is sinking. And the cities represent the lower decks of the vessel already too far gone. Perhaps we can find a few people far removed from society who are still interested in their creator, but perhaps we have retreated as far as we can, and the time has come to hunker down and wait for the Lord to return. The ancient believers did not share this view. As we've seen, they believed that Jesus had received all authority in heaven and on earth that he had a promise from God the Father to be sovereign Lord over all, to receive the nations as an inheritance, and to reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. They believed that he was given power to break the strongholds of Satan with a rod of iron and turn the kingdoms of this earth into his own kingdom. So they boldly, confidently, trustingly marched into the blackest and wickedest citadel of evil and proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and that he has bought all the citizens of this place with his precious blood and claimed them as his own people. I pray that the modern church will restore and recapture the evangelistic optimism of the ancient church. I pray that God will awaken in our hearts a faith in him that is so strong that the darkness and sin and evil that has previously filled us with despair and pushed us into a retreat will, as it did our ancient siblings in Christ, fill us instead with an indignation to the devil and a zeal for God to push us to charge with full force to claim the world in the name of him who is its only rightful ruler. These disciples had that spirit. And they came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. This might sound confusing because we mentioned a moment ago that these disciples were Hellenists. Why then would it be surprising that they would speak to Hellenists? There's a manuscript issue here, and the text used for the New King James Version are inferior. The better reading is very plain in the word choice that they spoke to the Greeks, see the New American Standard Version. Not merely Hellenized Jews, but Greek Gentiles. This should be plain enough since Luke mentions this in contrast to the others who spoke to Jews only. Whatever these Greeks were, they were not Jews. Furthermore, Luke says, they preached the Lord Jesus. As we continue through Acts, we will find that this was the special Gentile designation for Jesus. The word Christ or Messiah did not carry the special meaning to the pagan nations that it carried to the Jews, who had been taught to look and wait for God's anointed one. But the title, the Lord Jesus, gave Jesus the highest position imaginable to the minds of the pagans even supplanting the emperor of Rome himself. Preaching to Greeks might not seem so impressive to us even at this point in Acts, but here's where our chronology is important. The implication is that these people were preaching to Greeks before they were aware of the Cornelius event, and certainly without awareness of Philip and the eunuch, 
They had broken through the wall and evangelized the Gentiles without any extraordinary motivation beyond the simple fact that as followers of Jesus, they understood, as the apostles would have taught them, that his kingdom was to go out to all the nations. It seems that the event with Cornelius was virtually simultaneous, or at least in very close proximity of time, to the evangelism of the Gentiles in Antioch. We can picture in our minds that news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, perhaps just days after Peter had convinced them to think differently about the issue through his recital and reasoning. God arranged all of it perfectly to unfold together at just the right moment. And we must not think that the initiative taken by the disciples at Antioch was wrong, because verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them, most likely means that God was working miracles through them, and thus empowering their ministry in the same way he did the ministry of Philip. That's not difficult to believe because these men had come from the congregations in Jerusalem and Judea, and they would have already had occasion to receive the gifts of the Spirit through the apostles' hands as Philip himself had. But these supernatural manifestations were God showing his approval of their work. When Luke says a great number believed and turned to the Lord, we see a clear affirmation that becoming a follower of Jesus is not by belief or faith alone. They believed and turned to the Lord. He might have just as well said a great number believed and were baptized, as we've already learned that baptism is the event in which God works to formally turn us back to him and convert us from rebels to well-pleasing citizens of his kingdom through the forgiveness of our sins, Mark 16, 16 and Acts 3, 19. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. In our study of Acts 8, we parted ways with most scholars who think the apostles came to Samaria because they were suspicious of Philip's work and wished to investigate it. There's nothing to indicate that in the text. I suggest, rather, that Philip intentionally sent word to the apostles so they could come and impart their vital, stabilizing gifts to the new believers. Similarly, I see no reason to interpret the sending of Barnabas as an investigation of a rogue group. The church in Jerusalem, which you will recall we suggest is a broad term for all the disciples and congregations in that city, including the apostles and other influential leaders like James— and those specific groups with which they assembled had just been brought to the understanding that God had granted to the Gentiles also repentance unto life. So Barnabas is sent to encourage them and to receive a full picture of the encouraging things taking place there. Verse 23, When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now we see why they sent Barnabas. It is true he was, like some of the founding members of the congregation in Antioch from the island of Cyprus, but that's not the point of emphasis as far as Luke was concerned. Barnabas embodied the Christian spirit of love, unity, and optimism toward the gospel. Early in his life as a follower of Jesus, he had renounced all his earthly wealth and fully dedicated himself to the work of an evangelist. His gifts in communication and his spirit of charity toward others 
earned him this nickname by the apostles, Son of Encouragement. He was even able to see Christ in Saul of Tarsus when others could not look past his past and put his own reputation on the line to advocate for Saul and see him through his turbulent entrance into the community of those who had formerly been victims of his oppression. When Luke says Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, the same as had previously been noted about Stephen, it seems to be an elaboration on his comment that he was a good man. I mention this because in Acts, the references to the Holy Spirit's work in the church are largely to his supernatural empowerment of the disciples and especially of the apostles. Some scholars, in fact, conclude that Luke exclusively focuses on the miraculous aspects of the Spirit's work. I do not think it can be denied that Luke is primarily concerned with the miraculous ministry of the Spirit, but I think this case, and perhaps the reference to Stephen in Acts 6, maybe a few others, are exceptions in which Luke refers to the work of the Spirit in sanctification. That should not surprise us in the least. In fact, it surprises us that he does not make more mention of it because he was a student of the Apostle Paul. And in Paul's writings, the very essence of the Christian life is called walking in, being led by, and being filled with the Spirit of God. And to possess Christian character is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. This kind of character empowered Barnabas in a different way than working miracles, but one just as profound and meaningful. As he had been able to see what others could not in Saul, when he came to Antioch, Luke reports that he saw the grace of God. Others might have seen people in the church who they were convinced did not belong, people who they thought were beyond the hope of redemption and outside the scope of God's love and affection. But when Barnabas saw these people in the congregation there in Antioch, he saw the grace of God. And he was glad. Literally, he rejoiced and encouraged them all. He was, after all, the son of encouragement. That with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. And a great many people were added to the Lord. We might just mention here the phrase, continue with the Lord, or as the New American Standard Version says it, to remain true to the Lord. Redemption through Christ does not consist of an event of getting saved at a point in time and then just moving on with life. It is a new identity of loyalty and submission to Jesus, and it requires a purposing or resolution in the heart to glue oneself to the will of Jesus and to actively and intentionally walk as close to him as we can and get closer all the time. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Luke does not tell us why Barnabas felt the need to fetch Saul. It was not a simple task. The word seek implies that he was not easily found. It was about five or six years earlier that Saul had been sent to Tarsus by the brethren who were concerned for his safety in Judea. However, it's very possible that these years in Tarsus were among the most difficult and dangerous of Saul's life. Contrary to a fairly popular opinion, it is not appropriate to view this as a season for Saul to work out his theology. You recall that he spent three years receiving revelations from Christ in Arabia after he was converted. That was when and where Saul got his theology. When we last saw him, Saul emerged from his time with Jesus to make the difficult transition 
into the fellowship of those he had formerly persecuted in Jerusalem. During these years, he had to make the even more difficult break with his old life back home. We mentioned in a special study the evidence that Saul lost his family. If he was betrothed or perhaps even married, that ended. In his own words, he suffered the loss of all things, Philippians 3.8, and in that context, his focus was on the attachment, the comforts, and the potentialities of his life before he became a follower of Jesus. It's very likely that Saul himself had been preaching to both Jews and Gentiles during these years. Jesus had commissioned him directly to minister to both worlds, and he was uniquely and remarkably suited to that kind of work. During these ministries, it seems that Saul encountered all kinds of challenges and struggles. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24-32, he wrote about several experiences that are not recorded in the book of Acts, including three shipwrecks, a night and a day spent adrift in the ocean, four scourgings, and at least one occasion when he nearly drowned crossing a river. Likely, these things took place during this period of his life. After several years of proving his faith, it was a reasonable time to bring Saul back into the spotlight in his service. But there were other good reasons Barnabas would have to seek him out. Barnabas, as his first supporter among the Judean believers, was certainly aware of Saul's divine and special commission to preach to the Gentiles. And now that door had been flung open by the providence of God. Saul was the man for the hour. Verse 26. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Teaching would have taken place both in the assemblies that have just been mentioned and in private gatherings from house to house according to the apostolic practice mentioned in Acts 20 and 20. Something should be said here about the role of the assembly in the primitive church. In the ancient congregations, the assembly was one of the central points of their identity as a body. The church is literally the congregation, and what makes a congregation a congregation is that it congregates together. The assemblies were structured according to rules laid down by the apostles so that all things might be done decently and in order for the singular purpose of edification, that is, the spiritual building up of each member, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 and 40. Most of the rules and Regulations for the assemblies can be found in 1 Corinthians 14, and they closely resemble the standard function of assemblies in Jewish synagogues. It's likely that the Spirit of God used the synagogue as a model for the Christian assembly. Our recent social situations brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic have caused some people to think that one can fully function as a Christian without being a part of a local congregation or that one may be a part of a local congregation and not meet with them. While there are going to be certain situations where meeting together is impossible or inappropriate, the writer of Hebrews warned that to quit meeting together, Hebrews 10.23, is to fundamentally compromise one's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. This is a very important lesson for those who would practice Christianity according to the ancient order. But the meaning of this particular phrase is more than that they simply met with the church there. They joined themselves as members to the local body. We will see this even more clearly in Acts chapter 13. Verse 26 concludes, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This passage has been the subject of a great deal of debate. 
primarily over who called the disciples Christians and consequently how that name should be used or regarded by followers of Jesus Christ. At this point in our study, we do not have the time to walk through the history or the intricacies of that discussion, but we can simply say this. There is some evidence that the name Christian was given by divine revelation through Saul and Barnabas as a special designation for the disciples of Christ. The meaning of the phrase is essentially followers of Christ or Christ's followers. It may also have been imposed on the disciples from outsiders, since now that they include Gentiles, they can no longer be effectively lumped in with Jews. To be fair, virtually every passage that addresses the name Christian or might refer to it is rather ambiguous in the final analysis. However, when the apostles Peter and Paul interacted with the name Christian, they did not consider it blasphemous or unworthy of acceptance. Quite the contrary, they claimed to be Christians, they encouraged all others to do the same, and they said God could be glorified in that name. Acts 26.38, 1 Peter 4.16. The context here in Acts 11.26 does not indicate that any persecution or aggression was taking place. Rather, it discusses the results of Saul and Barnabas' ministry in the city. So in the final analysis, I believe that the name Christian is a very fitting and proper designation for disciples of Christ and through which Jesus may be honored. I'm glad to wear it, and I would that others would wear it also. We will have more to say on the subject of names and designations for believers in future studies, but for now, we leave the scene in Antioch a happy one, an occasion for rejoicing and encouragement because the grace of God has triumphed and the kingdom of Christ is spreading. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.